Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello? Josh, hey man, it's Luke. Hey, what's up? I'm calling to say thank you. All right. I've owed you some gratitude for 30 years this coming week. What for? Next week marks the 30th anniversary of the debut of one of, if not the greatest R&B albums of all time. Okay. Do you have a guess? Cooley High Harmony? Cooley High Harmony by Boyz II Men. That's exactly right. That is a great album. And what's scary is it's not as good as the second one. I know. It's amazing. But I think you introduced me to that album. And I know that I owned like the extended edition within like Singing in Spanish and with End of the Road and all the like other songs on it. But I'm pretty sure you still introduced me to the original Cooley High Harmony. So just call in to say thank you. That's a great album. You're welcome. All right. Now I have to go listen to it. Yeah. (laughs) All right, man. That's all I got. (laughs) All right. Cool. All right. We'll talk to you later. Later. All right. Bye. From Know You Media Group. This is 35, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Frog. This is Season 3, Episode 15, Montage Gold and the King of the Dinosaurs. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, April 27, 1991. Welcome, friends, to a brand new week in 30-year-old pop culture headlines and hot takes. It's hard to believe we're already a third of the way through 1991. I spent a little time this week beginning the arduous but immensely enjoyable task of assembling my 1992 database of movies, music, etc., and let me just say, next year is going to be a treat. The older I get, the more nostalgic 30 years ago feels. I expect that'll remain true for me for another 8 or 9 years until looking back 30 years means I'm looking back at my own adulthood, and I just feel old. But no need to worry about that yet. For now, we have only to focus on this one week in 1991. So, let's. We'll actually start with some sad news and work our way backwards. On April 27th, 1991, one of my absolute favorite TV shows ended. The show that introduced us to Johnny Depp or at least made him very, very famous. Which is ironic, considering he pretty much hated the show. Or rather, hated that he was obligated to make it. The show, 21 Jump Street. According to IMDB.com, Depp had no interest in being a part of a TV show, but signed a six-year contract for 21 Jump Street because the money was good, and he never thought the show would last more than a single season. It lasted, in large part, because of Depp. He was finally able to finagle his way out of his contract after the fourth season by giving half-hearted performances and requesting very strange story arcs for his character, Officer Tom Hansen. 
For example, one of his suggestions apparently involved the other characters on the show discovering that Hansen was obsessed with peanut butter when they caught him smearing it all over his naked body. Needless to say, that would have taken the show in a very different, although interesting, direction. And while I love Depp's character, I'd much rather see him leave the show than destroy it. It was such an interesting concept, in my opinion. Young-looking cops being placed undercover in local high schools. It was certainly not without its problems, though, as I was reminded this week rewatching the first season. The most glaring being the number of romantic encounters these officers had with the high school kids with whom they were embedded. I never ceased to be amazed at the places pop culture went in the 80s and early 90s. Racism, sexism, homophobia, and misogyny, among other things, weren't just cultural norms at the time. They were insulation for the structure of Western society, like cultural asbestos built into the very walls of our day-to-day lives. No doubt they remain so today, but it's at least somewhat comforting to know we are slowly but surely beginning to recognize them, call them out, and hopefully take steps to remove them from the walls we've built around ourselves. Undercover cops making out with teenagers, for example, wouldn't be so passively accepted by viewers as normal today. It would jump out. Rightfully. Obviously. This is not where I anticipated going with this. For now, I'll simply have to hold the tension between genuinely loving and feeling deeply nostalgic about 21 Jump Street and knowing I unequivocally reject some of what it considered to be normal. (sighs) Wow. Okay. As I climb down off this soapbox, I'll mention another series that ended 30 years ago this week at the end of a successful seven-season run. The Los Angeles crime drama Hunter, starring Fred Dyer as the title character, Homicide Detective Sergeant Rick Hunter. Dreyer... A 13-year veteran defensive end is the only player in NFL history to ever score two safeties in a single game, a record he's held now for nearly 50 years. And that's it. I couldn't find anything else interesting to say about him or this show. New to television this week in 1991 was a show I loathed with my entire being at the time, although I suppose I'd be willing to reconsider my disdain today looking back with a much deeper fondness for all things related to Jim Henson and armed with the knowledge that one of the series' main characters, Fran Sinclair, was voiced by Lucille Bluth herself, the late Jessica Walter. ABC's prehistoric primetime sitcom about a family of anthropomorphic dinosaurs... Dinosaurs... Earl, Sneeds, and Claire. Oh, God, my whole name. I am your wife. And I am the mighty Megalosaurus, the king of the dinosaurs, the Thunder Lizard. And if the Thunder Lizard wants a 90-inch television set, he's going to get a 90-inch television set. So what do you have to say about that? The Tyrannosaurus Rex is king of the dinosaurs. That's debatable. No, it's not. I dated one in high school. In researching this show, I learned a couple other little trivia bits that I appreciated, to my great surprise. For example, it had never dawned on me that the family on which the show is centered, the Sinclairs, are named after the Sinclair Oil Company, whose logo is recognizable for the green four-legged dinosaur it features. And that's not all. Actually, most of the series' main characters are named after various petroleum companies. Phillips, Hess, there's even a character named BP. And those aren't the only clever names in the series. There's also a recurring news anchor character named Howard Hand Up Me, a reference to the fact that he is a hand puppet. It turns out Jim Henson had the idea for the show after being impressed by the technology his creature shop had developed for the turtle suits in 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The same technology was used to create the animatronic suits for the dinosaurs. Several of the Ninja Turtle suit actors worked as dinosaurs suit actors as well. In fact, there was nearly some other Ninja Turtle overlap. 
Robbie Rist, who voiced Michelangelo in the original film trilogy, was actually considered for the role of 14-year-old Robbie Sinclair, but didn't get the part for fear of the characters coming off too similar to one another. Despite my genuine contempt for this show, there were, strangely, a lot of folks who loved it. Granted, there are a lot of people who love things like Olives and The Bachelor, but that doesn't make them good. The show lasted for a total of 65 episodes over four seasons and has an average score of 7.4 out of 10 across more than 17,000 ratings on imdb.com. I will never understand. Moving on, new in music this week in 1991 was what, if I'm not mistaken, was the first CD my older brother Josh ever owned, which I have now found hilarious for a solid 30 years. Michael Bolton's seventh studio album, Time, Love, and Tenderness. Now, I had every intention of making all kinds of fun of this album. But honestly, Michael Bolton was kind of a badass musically. I may have been too young to appreciate it at the time, but give this a listen. This is the title track from that album. This is pure early 90s gold. Bolton had, and maybe still has, I have no idea, this uncanny ability to make love songs that feel like they could perfectly score a Rocky Balboa training montage. Like a perfect example from his 1989 album Soul Provider, How Can We Be Lovers? Close your eyes, listen, and just imagine Stallone in gray sweats getting ready to defend his title and his honor against someone larger and meaner and less representative of American values, even while Adrian begs Rock not to fight again. Listen.
See what I mean? Bolton was on to something. And while I may not have appreciated it as a kid, others certainly did. Time, Love, and Tenderness went platinum in the U.S. eight times over, Bolton's largest-selling album by a decent margin. And he's still at it today, touring, making records, the whole deal. We'll revisit this album again in a few weeks. Bolton wasn't the only vocal powerhouse to release their seventh studio album this week in 1991, though. On April 26th, we saw the release of the double-platinum-selling Power of Love from R&B icon Luther Vandross. Ironically, just a couple of months earlier, Vandross had won a Grammy for Best Vocal Performance for his song Here and Now from his 1989 Greatest Hits album, The Best of Luther Vandross, The Best of Love. That Grammy was presented to him by none other than Michael Bolton. Vandross was referred to by many as the Velvet Voice and is regarded by most as one of the most influential artists of all time. At the 2004 Grammys, following a stroke that left him in a coma for two months less than a year prior, ending his career far too early, Vandross referred back to the title track from Power of Love in a pre-taped acceptance speech for his Song of the Year win. Hello, everybody. I wish I could be with you there tonight. I want to thank everyone and, uh, for your love and support. And remember... When I say goodbye, it's never for long, because I believe in the power of love. A few months later, Vandross made his final public appearance on The Oprah Winfrey Show, and then, tragically, in July of 2005, he died at only 51 years old. Thankfully, he lives on today through his truly incredible catalog of music. Mariah Carey, who adored Luther Vandross and even sang a duet with him in 1994, had the number one album in the country yet again this week in 1991 with her self-titled debut. And we had a couple of new number one singles on the Billboard charts. At the top of the hot rap chart was Nikki D with Daddy's Little Girl, which I don't even remotely remember. While I have no memory of that song or of Nikki D whatsoever, I do remember when the remix of the Suzanne Vega tune it's sampling, Tom's Diner, felt like the only thing playing on the radio for most of 1990. And once again, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but kind of do now. Especially the original a cappella version of the song. But I digress. The top song in the country 30 years ago this week, for the first of two weeks at number one, was this breakout mainstream crossover hit from Christian artist Amy Grant. When I tell you this song was huge, I mean, it was in the top 10 in 10 countries. It won the Grammy for Song of the Year and marked the very first time a, quote, Christian artist reached number one on the mainstream pop charts. Amazingly, the song's lyrics were penned by Grant in just about 10 minutes in her kitchen while gazing upon the face of her six-week-old daughter, Millie. This after much struggle previously to find words for the song. 
The music had been written by producer Keith Thomas, whose only condition for allowing Grant to write and release the song was that its title had to be Baby Baby. According to an unsighted quote on the song's Wikipedia page, her early attempts to write a romantic-sounding lyric to the song with such a title came off sounding like, quote, some overgrown football jock with no vocabulary trying desperately to be romantic, end quote. As successful as Baby Baby was, it wasn't quite as huge as the platinum-selling 1992 single from R&B trio TLC, Baby Baby Baby. Nor was it even remotely as successful as the 12 times platinum-selling Justin Bieber single from 2010, Baby. The last little bit of music news from 30 years ago this week was the 26th annual Academy of Country Music Awards, which took place on April 24th, wherein Garth Brooks set a new record, taking home six shiny new trophies. Reba McIntyre and Alan Jackson were also winners that night, and the whole event was hosted by Clint Black, Kathy Matea, and the living legend George Strait. I don't particularly care, but I know that my friend, patron, 30 Pop listener, and occasional guest Derek Lord will. So, that was for you, Derek. In Hollywood this week, the pre-summer blockbuster lull continued. Not with regard to the quantity of films being released, but certainly as it relates to the quality of said films. First up was Matt Dillon and Sean Young in a remake of the 1956 film of the same title, A Kiss Before Dying. Ellen Carlson finally met the perfect man. Marry me. Are you serious? Church, bridesmaids, the works. He's everything a father could hope for. I wouldn't want you to think I intend on spending the rest of my life doing what I'm doing now. Ultimately, my ambition lies elsewhere. Everything she'd ever dreamed of. We're young, rich, we love each other. There's only one thing wrong. Who is it? Bellman. Jay is different from anyone I've known. He's got this strength. Hey, come on! You need some help there? What you got in there, dead body? I'm investigating the disappearance of Patricia Farrah. Your wife's name was in a diary. Hmm. What are you doing? Watching you. You look so peaceful, I don't want to take advantage of you. Come on. Take advantage of me. You're such a kind and loving and gentle boy. I'm determined. And I'm not afraid of hard work. Matt Dillon. Why? Sean Young. God, you scared me. A kiss. Before dying. Now... I'm all for a good thriller, but this one is not for me. IMDb's plot synopsis alone is enough to turn me away. It reads, A determined student murders his pregnant secret girlfriend and moves on to her twin sister who gradually becomes suspicious of her new lover. Yeah, that's just not for me. It did well enough in theaters, though, I suppose. I mean, it didn't break any records, but they at least broke even on their $15 million budget. They did not do quite as well as another lower-budget release from this week in 1991, one which, while it doesn't look like an Oscar nominee by any means, I do think I'd probably enjoy it today. Sean Astin and Will Wheaton in Toy Soldiers. The Regis School for Boys. 
where the country's best families hey bring that back here send the world's worst students they're gonna kick me out kick me out let make four prep schools in four years you're trying for the guinness book of records but these boys are in for a real shock Fuego. If you do not produce my father unharmed, I will begin executing the hostages. I'm sure by now you have discovered who their parents are. Chairman of the Armed Services Committee. Vice Chairman of the Republican Party. What does your father do, William? Contractor. According to this, he owns the third largest construction company in the world. Yeah, he's a contractor. My boys, many of them, they have a real problem with authority. Are you with me or not? Of course we'll meet you. But if you get a shot, we're going to be PO'd. I have the assault force in a staging area five minutes away. You have seen these orange wires. These are wired to explosives. The kid can get the other students out of the line of fire. If any one of these wires is cut, they will explode! This kid has been kicked out of two schools. or well, three schools. Yeah. No, 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 no. That's a detonator. He's got guts. He's a leader. Billy says he can do it. I gotta believe he can. That's the signal. All right. We're really gonna do this? You bet. soldiers i have only vague memories of this movie releasing but i loved sean astin in those days as in these days i still love sean astin so regardless of the actual quality of this movie i'm confident i'd have thought he was pretty great in it the only new release from this week in 1991 that i do remember seeing though for reasons i can't imagine today was the top earner at the box office for the first of two weeks sylvester stallone in oscar the year is 1931, and gangster Snaps Provolone is in control. The police are powerless. His rivals are helpless. No one in the entire city dares to defy him, except his daughter. I'm a modern 30s woman. Look! Put that away of your father! She'll do anything, anywhere, with anybody. Your daughter and I are lovers. What? Did he tell you I was pregnant? What? Touchstone Pictures presents Sylvester Stallone in the story of a father. What we need is a husband. Trying to find someone. But no look at us. Who will marry his daughter. I've decided to go away to a convent. Well, you're a little late. Ah! Maybe it'll be Anthony. But I love Thornton. Or Thornton. I want Oscar. Or Oscar. Who's Oscar? He's got pimples. A couple of dates with you and that'll clear up. But whoever she decides to spend her life with. You mean she's having the chauffeur's baby? It's sure to ruin his life. I just came from Lisa's bedroom. You and everybody else. Sylvester Stallone, Oscar. I remember going to see this in theaters. I do not remember if I made it to the end of the movie without either falling asleep or ducking out early. I just know I didn't like it at all. There was no boxing, there were no badass knives or shirtless, crooked mouth machine gun firing screams to be found. Who knows what I would think of this movie as an adult. I've always had such a bad taste in my mouth about it that I've never bothered to see it a second time. And despite being the top earner for two straight weekends, this was a colossal flop. They saw a return of only $23 million on their estimated $35 million spend on this movie. 
I find it unsurprising that a film in which Sylvester Stallone plays a character named Snaps Provolone didn't do well at the box office. One thing that might have redeemed this one for me, though, it was originally in the works in the 80s with the late, great John Belushi playing the lead role. That actually sounds interesting. But sadly, we'll never know. And I'll likely never know if my feelings about this movie were just because I was 11 or because it was actually bad or both. To be honest, after this episode, I'll probably never wonder again either. Life is short and I have better things to watch and rewatch, much of which released in the summer of 1991, which is right around the corner. Be sure to come back, friends. It's about to get really, really good. For now, our time has come to a close. But don't be sad. And if you are, remember... Nothing cures a broken heart like time, love, and tenderness. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Braun. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. 